one of the most tragic uh, earthquakes of recent history took place in January 2010 in Haiti. At 4.53 in the afternoon, a massive earthquake took place at 7 on the Richter scale. The initial estimates were that over 100,000 people died. The government later said that there were more like 300,000 people that died. Can you imagine what it would be like to be there in that city and to see your city having crumbled around you? It would be bad enough to have seen that devastation, that destruction, but it would be even worse to know that your government officials actually had had warning of this event, that they could have prepared, that, it, that there was an opportunity, there was a warning that they had ignored. A scientist by the name of Claude Prepetit, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that properly, came forward and said, look, a year ago I came to our government officials and I said, we have to install seismic stations, we have to evacuate these buildings because we have to expect the worst. He did this just one year prior to the earthquake coming. He wasn't the only one. Before that, about two years before the earthquake, five scientists had gotten together and they'd written a paper saying, there's an earthquake coming, we have to expect this. In fact, an entire decade before that, scientists had gotten together and they said, look, pressure is building in the Caribbean region. We can expect that an earthquake is going to take place. We have to be watching for the big one." And yet the government officials continued to allow them to build concrete buildings that could not withstand an earthquake. They allowed them to continue to live in these conditions. And critics later went on to say, you know what? They could have afforded the seismic station. They said they didn't have enough money for it, but they were buying these Nissan Patrol 4x4s that were really expensive. For what purpose? It didn't save lives. They were busy, focused on things that simply did not matter. I find it fascinating that, you know, last week we looked at the story of Noah and how Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord because Noah walked with God. He had this personal relationship with God. And that relationship, we saw even in the genealogy leading up to Noah, Noah's uh, heirs, the, one, or the ones who came before him, his ancestors, were people who were known for walking with God. They were known for calling on God versus the other line of descendants we saw. They were the ones who were known for what they accomplished, for building cities, for teaching people to play instruments, for all of these various things that really, in the end, mattered so little when the flood came. But we looked at last week what the earth was like in that day. Can you, any descriptors of what, what the earth was like right before the flood, according to the Bible? What was the earth like? Violence, right? It was beautiful. It was, it was before being destroyed, but, but it was violent. We saw violence taking place. Now, Jesus talks about this flood coming and, and about Noah, and he, he references that to compare to the end of times. He says, as he's talking about what the end of times are going to be like, when Jesus comes back, he uses Noah as the example, and I find it fascinating what he points to. Look at what he says in Luke chapter 17. You can turn there in your Bibles if you have it. Luke chapter 17 and verse 26. It says, And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. And we talked even last week how we do see violence increasing. We do see that this planet is not walking with God. They're not focused on God. We do see similar things happening on the planet today. And Jesus said, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be before the coming of the Son of Man. But look at what he goes on to point to. He says this about them. They ate, they drank, 
They married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So here's my question. Is there anything wrong with the things on this list? Is it wrong to eat? How many of you think it's wrong to eat? Okay, good. Uh, you, you wouldn't be here if you thought that. It was, is it wrong to drink? Is it, is it wrong to get married? No, these are things that God created and, and He implanted desires in us to have these things and to experience these things. So what was it that was a problem for the people in the days of Noah? They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying wives, they were doing things that God had even blessed, but they were doing it in such a way that it distracted them from the means of salvation. You might say it like this, Jesus warned that we will be distracted by good things in the last days. Is that possible? Is it possible that some of our biggest temptations can actually be good things? Sometimes we're really focused on not doing bad things, but we cram our lives so full of good things that it may be possible that we're missing walking with God in the process. Jesus doesn't point to the fact that they were violent. He doesn't point to their wickedness. That was true, but what he points to is the fact that they're distracted by eating and drinking and marrying when they should have been getting on the boat. And they weren't following his invitation of love. If we look back at Genesis chapter 6, you can open your Bible there because we're going to look at several different verses in Genesis chapter 6 as we look at the story here about this incredible flood that took place. In Genesis chapter 6, and we'll look at verse 11, it says this, The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with what? Violence. That's what we just talked about. It's similar to uh, the word Hamas, right? So it was, it was filled with violence, but it wasn't just filled with violence. What else do we see about the earth here? It was corrupt. It was filled with corruption, right? Verse 12 goes on to say, so God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. You see a theme here? It was corrupt. It was corrupt. It was violent. And later on in the chapter, it says it was violent. It's repeating this over and over again. Notice what it says going a little bit further down. Well, first we'll look at this. Violence and corruption we see are the products of being distracted from walking with God. Noah alone was found to be righteous in his generation. Noah walked with God. The rest of them, Jesus doesn't point to the fact that they were corrupt, that they were violent. These are the truths of what was taking place. It was a violent place. We saw last week how Lamech was saying, hey, if Cain was avenged sevenfold, I will be avenged seventy-sevenfold. I will kill a man for wounding me. That was the type of planet that it had become. But Jesus doesn't point to that. He points to the simple things that they were doing like eating and drinking. And Mary, and he says that this was the source, the root of their problem and why they missed his invitation. In verse 13, God goes to Noah and he says, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now it's fascinating, if you took out a, a, a concordance and you looked at the words that are used here, and you look up the word here that when it says that, When it says, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence, I will destroy them. If you looked up that word destroy, it's the same word that's used earlier when it says the earth was corrupt. So it says the earth is corrupt. The earth is filled with corruption. So I, because of this violence, I am going to 
allow the earth to be corrupted. I'm going to give them over, basically, to their corruption that they have chosen. This is the judgment that I am going to bring on this planet. I find this fascinating because in Revelation chapter 11, verse 18, it says this, the, the nations were angry and your wrath has come, saying God's wrath has come. So notice what happens first. The nations become angry and God responds with what? Anger or wrath. It's the same word, actually. They just translate it with a different English word. So in Noah's day, the earth was corrupt and God responds with Allowing the earth to be corrupt with sending corruption on the planet. In the end, the nations are angry and God responds with the anger that he sees on the planet. So you go on and you read here and it says, and you should, and that you should reward your servants and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So it says in the end, there are going to be people who are careless about this planet. They're careless about the needs and wants of the people on this planet. They're oppressing the poor. They're oppressing, maybe they're even not caring for the rest of the planet. And in the end, destruction, judgment is going to come to those who destroy the earth. So we see here that when God judges, he gives us over to our own choices. That's what Romans one twenty four says. When it compares the wrath of God, it says, Basically, the wrath of God is a giving over to what mankind has chosen. God created a planet that was perfectly good. It was a beautiful planet. God looked and he said, this is very good. But he gave us the freedom of choice as creatures who are free to love or not to love God. And we unfortunately chose the way that led to corruption, the way that led to destruction. And God gave us over to that choice. He allowed for these things to take place on the planet that utterly wiped out humankind. Genesis 6.14 goes on though. says this, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. It's fascinating that as he describes this, he uses this word ark, which in the Hebrew is only used in this story and in Exodus when it's describing how Moses was put into the Nile River. So, Jack Jacon, who's a professor at Andrews University, says this. He says, Ark is in fact an Egyptian loan word which designates a divine shrine in the form of a box. What does it mean by loan word? It means this is a word that, that, that has its roots in, in Egypt and it's used there to describe a divine shrine in the form of a box. And this is the word that the Holy Spirit inspires Moses to use as he describes this boat that is to be used in order to provide salvation for all who are willing to accept it. It's pretty fascinating because as you keep reading, you read the next verse, or, or uh, verse 15, it says this, and this is how you shall make it. And God begins to make the description of it. But this very first phrase, and this is how you shall make it, this is actually used one other time in the Bible. It's used here, and, and it's translated a little different in the English. Uh, but Exodus 29 and verse 38, it says, Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. So you take this. This is a, a description of what was to take place in the sanctuary in Israel to offer a sacrifice representing Jesus and the salvation that he was giving to the people of Israel. And that's really what the sanctuary was all about. Scholars take that and they also look at the fact that here it goes on to describe in detail the length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 
30 cubits. This is the same language that's used, except for different measurements, when they went to create the Ark of the Covenant, which is a different word in Hebrew, but it's the same uh, type of description of the measurements. Also, this is the only other structure, the Ark that Noah builds, is the only other structure besides that sanctuary that was created uh, in, in the wilderness that is described by God, prescribed by God, to be very specifically made. You know, the measurements are given, the exact size and materials and all these things. These are the only two structures that God gives the clear pattern for people to create. So here we see that, that in a way, the ark that Noah created really was a sanctuary. It was a sanctuary for two of every clean animal and seven, uh, sorry, two of every unclean animal and seven of every clean animal. It was a sanctuary for Noah and his family, and it was a sanctuary for every person who was willing to accept the invitation that we learned last week that through Noah, Jesus was appealing to those people, giving that invitation to come into the ark to experience salvation. Sanctuary, the definition for sanctuary, if you look it up, is a place of refuge or safety. When God designed the, the sanctuary in the, in the wilderness, it was for him to come and dwell among them, but the purpose wasn't just for God to be there, but it was so that they could get back to God, so that they could find a place of refuge, so that they could find safety in their lives. And that only comes through a relationship with Jesus, which could only be restored through Jesus Christ as represented in the sanctuary. With Noah, as he builds this ark, he's building a sanctuary. He's building this opportunity, this option where humankind could be saved and where animals will be preserved, where the planet can have a second chance. It can have another option. It can go on. It's providing a sanctuary, a place of refuge or safety. God comes to Noah and he he promises him something that becomes normative throughout the rest of Scripture. He says this, but I will establish my covenant with you. This is the first time that that word covenant is used in the Bible. And this is where throughout the rest of the Bible, the Bible really is all about God making a promise and God fulfilling that promise. That's what the word covenant means, basically. God making a covenant with his people with this planet, and God following through in the person of Jesus and accomplishing that covenant. And the very first time that we see God coming and giving a covenant to his people is when the ark is built. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So we read about this story later on, Paul writing about it in that chapter about the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. He says, by faith, being warned, divinely warned, of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of the household, of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. This is a powerful verse as he describes in one verse this story of Noah. Noah who was warned by God. So obviously, God wasn't wanting to destroy people. We, we read last week how he was grieved. He was moved to tears, basically. He was sorry. He, he wanted to do everything possible to provide a sanctuary, a way of escape. He's divinely warned. 
And then he's moved with godly fear. Can you imagine as Noah and his sons are pounding on the, in those nails and they hire carpenters and as they're fashioning this boat, can you imagine as, as they put it together with what care, what concern, what you could use the word godly fear, would they, would they put every piece together? Would, would they put the pitch on? You know, it's not like they're going to, you know, when you have a minimum maybe wage job or something like that and you go to work and, and it's, you know, you're going to skip over maybe some of the details because you're not being treated. Or maybe some people are, are not even treated well enough to, to really uh, get what they need out of their job. And it's, it's hard to do a good job based on how they're being treated. But when you know that you are preparing an ark that has the potential to save your family, you're going to fashion it and form it. Every detail, every board, everything that you do with this ark, you're going to want to make it exactly like God has instructed. Why? Because you trust in the one who's given the instructions. Because you want for him to follow through on his promise. Because you believe that he has provided a way of escape. And through that, Noah became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah became one of the first people in the Bible that we know as being righteous by faith. His faith took the form of an action. He trusted this being. He loved God. And so he followed through by building what God told him to build. He had this trust relationship with God. But many of the other people were eating. They were drinking. They were marrying. And they were given in marriage. They weren't worried about God's warning. They weren't worried about what God had to say. Just like the Haitian officials totally ignored this warning about a coming earthquake to the destruction of hundreds of thousands of lives. How is it with me today? Am I distracted from what God wants for my life from walking with Him? I want you to imagine for a minute Joe and Rachel. Now, Joe comes to you and he says, Hey, I got... I'm, I'm having my anniversary this Sunday. And you say, oh, congratulations. How many years has it been since you've been married? Oh, I've been married for, for 40 years. Wow, that's, that's wonderful. Joe, uh, where's your wife at? Oh, well, she lives in, in Massachusetts. But don't you live in Templeton? Yeah, but, but Rachel lives in, in Massachusetts. Okay, Joe, well, how often do you go to see Rachel? Well, I saw her on our wedding day. You saw your wife 40 years ago on your wedding day. Um, yeah, okay, that's good. But, but when have you seen her since then? Do I need to see her again? We got married. I have the papers. I still have my wedding certificate, my marriage certificate. We're still married. Wait, wait, hang on, Joe. Joe, do you, at least you must FaceTime pretty much every day. You must like do it multiple times a day. You must make sure that you have video calling going on in your relationship. Oh no, I can't afford a, a smartphone or any type of internet connection. No. Well, Joe, when was the last time you talked to your wife? Oh, well, I, I, I talk to her each and every Saturday. Each and every Saturday between 10 and 12 o'clock, I go and I talk to my wife. I, I call her on the phone and we have a great conversation. And then I say, hey, honey, I'll, I'll talk to you next week. What kind of a quality of marriage would that be? 
What type of a relationship could a person have? And really, we would come to Joe and we'd be like, Joe, you're not married. Seriously. <laughs> There's, it, it, it's, it's not realistic. Rachel, Rachel is, is really not your wife. It, it doesn't matter the marriage certificate. It doesn't matter the two-hour conversation. But you guys don't really know each other. You've never even gone on a date besides your wedding day. You don't really know your wife. And in the end, Jesus says, it's going to be like the days of Noah. But a lot of us will have been distracted. We'll be eating. We'll be marrying. We'll be drinking. We'll be doing a lot of stuff. But we don't really know Jesus. We don't really walk with Jesus. Jesus doesn't really have the priority. And maybe we can be distracted by all the good stuff in our life from the only relationship that really, truly matters. In Genesis chapter 7, I love how God goes on to, to tell Noah finally to come in the ark after it's completed. He's made it just as God has commanded. Verse 1, he says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. I've seen that you are somebody that, that wants to, to have a relationship with me. You want to walk with me. And so come on in, Noah, and everybody else that wants to come with you. But there's only seven other people besides Noah that took up that amazing invitation from Jesus. Down in verse 16, he says something fascinating. God says, So those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord, what does it say? Shut him in. These are some of the the best words of the, the story about Noah because this tells us that, that the fact was that Noah could build this boat. He could follow God's instructions. But in the end, salvation wasn't going to come through that boat. But it came through the God who alone was able to seal him into that boat, who was able to protect him through the storm. When you have a storm that is of this proportions, that's covering the entire planet, when you have the fountains of the great deep breaking apart, you have the, the elements just being rent asunder by this massive flood. It could have only been the God who designed the boat, who protected it, and saw it through this catastrophic event. I love what it says in the Review and Herald, March 12, 1901. It says, It was Christ who kept the ark safe amid the roaring, seething billows because its inmates had faith in his power to preserve him. They believed God shut us in. We're staying in this ark. We want to be in the place where Jesus has designed for us. And we believe that here we are safe. Here's the thing. You and I are called to build an ark today. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16 says this, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? You are designed to be a sanctuary, a place for God to dwell. And God is longing to inhabit us. He's longing to make us a place where we can be secure in Jesus. We can have safety. We can have a refuge in Jesus. We have an ark to build. 1 Corinthians 3, a little bit earlier on, says this, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The only way that we can build this sanctuary, the only way that it will ever stand through the storm that is coming, and if you read the book of Revelation, you see that there is a massive storm that's coming on this planet that God is allowing the planet to give themselves over to. It's going to be a violent storm. It's going to be filled with all kinds of catastrophes. But in the midst of that, 
God wants for you to be safe in the shelter of his almighty wings. In the time of Jesus, you remember that Jesus, as he called out the Pharisees, he said, you hypocrites, how I've longed for you to come to me, but you would not. I wanted to shelter you like a hen shelters its chicks, and and yet you weren't willing. God is waiting and wondering, will we look to Him and to Him only for our salvation? And will we focus on building that relationship with Him? Allowing ourselves to be that sanctuary in which He can dwell. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30 says this, And do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Sometimes we can look forward with trepidation for the, the time of trouble that might be coming, for the difficulties that we might face in the future. But if we have faith in the saving power of Jesus Christ, if we have faith in the Holy Spirit filling us as the temple of God, we can know this for a fact, that He wants to seal us for the day of redemption. That He's the one that will see us through. That He's the one who shuts the door of the ark. And when we're shut in with Jesus, we have nothing to fear. We can make all the other preparations that we want to make. We can do all the things that we might think are going to help us. But in the end, the only thing that's going to matter is knowing that you have a shelter and a refuge in Jesus Christ. Luke 21 and verse 34, Jesus says this, But take heed to yourselves, and he's talking here in Luke 21 about the last days. He says, Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness, And notice what he says. I mean, when we read that as as Christians, it may be simpler for us to say, okay, carousing, yeah, I'm not going around living a wild party life. That's no problem. Good deal. Then it goes on to say, with drunkenness. Yeah, okay, that's that's fine. Uh, And if, if you are struggling with this, again, the focus should be on Jesus and his power to save you. But a lot of us may think, well, drunkenness, that's not a big deal. And then look at where he goes after that. What's the next line? And cares of this life. I don't know about you, but I was happy with that list until I got there. Because I have a lot of cares in my life. I have a lot of things that I get concerned about. I have a lot of worries in my life. And Jesus says, I'm concerned for the people in the last days that they're going to be focused on the worries, the concerns, the cares, taking care of their homes, taking care of their cars, taking care of their family, taking care of their jobs, and they're going to miss me and the refuge that I want to give to them, that I'm longing to offer to them. I'm worried that they might not take the time to really get to know me as their best friend. Jesus goes on to say, one verse later, it says, Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And we looked at this just a couple of weeks ago when we re- the, the sermon where we talked about where the battle is. The battle for watching isn't to watch for the drunkenness, the carousing, the cares of this life. It's not to fixate ourselves on that, but it's to fixate ourselves on Jesus. To watch Jesus, to pray the prayers of dependence upon Jesus, to recognize that Jesus is the only one who can see us through in the storm that's coming on this planet. Education, page 260, says this, an intensity such as never before was seen is taking possession of the world. Would you agree with that statement? Do you find that your own life is getting more and more intense? You know, it's funny, I'll talk to people who have just retired and they're like, 
I had more time before I retired than I have now. Life is just getting more and more busy, more and more crammed with the cares of this life. An intensity such as never before was seen is taking place, is taking place in the world. In amusement, in money making, in the contest for power, in the very struggle for existence, there is a terrible force that engrosses body and mind and soul. It's captivating us. It's, it's grabbing our attention to the place where when we read our Bibles, when we open our Bibles, we're so exhausted that, that we fall asleep. When we go to pray, all we can think about is all the cares, all the concerns that we have. And our minds just aren't fixated on Jesus. But look at what, in the midst of it, in the midst of that maddening rush, God is speaking. He bids us come apart and commune with him. Be still and know that I am God. Friends, the call for the days of Noah, the call for the times that we're living in, is to be still, to take time to know Jesus as your Savior. To not miss the sanctuary that he's longing to create in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. To, to not grieve the Holy Spirit away who's longing to seal you for that day of redemption. To not reject his entreaties as the people in the days of Noah did. We read last week about how the thoughts of their heart were only evil continually. God was just looking for anybody who was sending up a thought towards him, a, a prayer towards him. They were thinking about God. God is longing for us to be a people who will be still and know that he is God. Page 261 concludes saying this, Not a pause for a moment in his presence, but personal contact with Christ. To sit down in companionship with him. This is our need. That's just my question for you this morning. Have you taken time to sit down with Jesus, to be friends with Jesus, for companionship with Jesus. Just you and Jesus alone. Group dates are great. But you need also that time for you and Jesus where you sit down with your Bible, you open maybe the Gospels and say, Jesus, reveal to me more of your beauty. And you take time in prayer. I get that this is difficult, right? So the last six months of my life, things have radically changed. For the better, don't get me wrong. My life has become so much the sweeter. But, but my life, oftentimes my day starts at 6 a.m. when the girls need to be fed and the wife needs breakfast while she's feeding the girls. And then after that, I need to take care of the girls for a bit before, while Leah, who's been up during the night, takes a little bit of a nap. And then finally, I put the, the girls down for a nap. And by that time, part of the, most of the morning is starting to get away and it's mid-morning. And I'm learning that if, if I don't pray for Jesus to wake me up in the morning, if I don't ask him, God, you've got to give me the strength, you've got to give me the energy to seek you this morning, that, that my day can get away from me. I used to enjoy to, to sit down in communionship, companionship with Jesus for, sometimes it was easily three, four hours in the early morning hours. It's much more difficult to find that time now. I get that you may have pressures in your life. Many of you are parents. Many of you have stressful jobs. Many of you have things going on in your life. But I'm here to tell you that we've got to fight for that time with Jesus. We've got to do whatever it takes to set aside that time with Jesus. We've got to guard our night hours so that we're not up too late. We've got to guard what we eat so that we have energy and strength because knowing Jesus, friendship with Jesus... That's absolutely everything. That's all that matters, to know Jesus. And as you know Jesus, he'll transform your heart so that you begin to love the people around you. You begin to love your family like you've never loved them before. 
Begin to love your neighbors, your peop- the people at work, the people that you come into contact with. God will do all that you need in your life if we will only take the time to really get to know him. Jesus warned that as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. Back in 1941, it was December, there were two privates sitting at this radar station in Hawaii. As they sat there, they saw something on the screen. Now, this was a new radar system. It was, I believe, the SRC-270. They had moved it there on Thanksgiving Day. They were just beginning to learn how to use it. As they're there, they're watching. They actually stayed longer than they should have because the the vehicle that was to come take them to breakfast was late. And so they're there, they're watching the screen a little bit longer than usual. And as they're, they're watching the screen, suddenly they notice something coming their direction. And the screen might have looked something like this. And as they look at this cloud of objects headed towards them, say, we've got to do something. We've got to, we've got to call the, the, the command center for the radar. So they radio over and Private McDonald answers the phone and they say, look, there are a whole bunch of planes headed towards us. You've got to let the command, the, the lieutenant know. So he quickly Sets, hangs up the phone and runs over to Lieutenant Tyler and tells Lieutenant Tyler, there's a whole bunch of airplanes inbound. Lieutenant Tyler says, don't worry, don't worry about it. It's, it, it's not a problem. That's, uh, I, that's a bunch of B-17s coming in. Uh, they're American bombers. It, it's not going to be an issue. So he goes back and he, he calls back to uh, George and Jose, Joseph, who are back at the station. And as he talks to George and Joseph, uh, they say, no, 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 no. You've got to go back to the commander. This is serious. I have never seen this many planes inbound. You, you have to let him know that this is a big deal. He's like, okay, uh, I'm going to go tell him. So he goes and he tells Lieutenant Tyler again, look, th- this is a big deal. There's a lot of planes headed towards us. And, and he says, no, it, 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 it's, it's, it's probably nothing. They don't know what they're, what they're seeing. He says, look, I, I'm not calling them back. They are serious about this. You need to call them yourself. So Lieutenant Tyler gets on the phone and he calls them back and they begin to tell him that there is a serious incoming attack on Hawaii. And he said, don't worry about it. It's not a problem. And he hung up the phone. Well, they began to monitor. They plotted it for a little bit longer. And then finally, they closed things down and went to breakfast and got to breakfast about 8 a.m., when they found out that this was one of the most horrific days in our nation's history, as Pearl Harbor was bombed, as thousands of, of military men died, as we lost many of our ships there in the harbor. And it all could have been presented. And, and Lieutenant Tyler later said, well, well, I have a friend who, who flies these bombers. And he, he told me that, that on the night when they're coming in, the radio station will pull, blare Hawaiian music all night long. And then when you hear that, you can know that the bombers are coming in. And I knew that they were supposed to be coming in soon. And when I came to work, I was listening to the radio, and it was Hawaiian music playing. And I just assumed that it must have been B-17 bombers who were coming in. And he ignored a warning that could have at least saved a few lives. Friends, Jesus has given us a warning. He says, don't be so absorbed in the cares of life. Don't be so absorbed in, in where you're going to find your next meal and, and who you're going to marry and what's going to happen to your kids. Don't be as absorbed in that as in being absorbed with me. Because I'll take care of all that if, 
if you'll focus, you'll delight yourself in me, you'll seek first my kingdom, all of these things will be added unto you. Would you just bow your heads with me this morning? Father, I just want to thank you that you have provided a refuge. That you've provided a place of safety. And that that place is Jesus. We see that represented through the ark. We see it represented through the sanctuary. We don't just want symbols and types and representations. We want you. We want to know you as our best friend. We want to know you in the, the day in and day out vicissitudes of life the challenges that we face. We want to know you as a personal Savior. And and God, just right now, in the silence of our own hearts, we want to take time to ask you to give us a heart to know you, to give us a heart to set aside time every day, to sit at your feet, to get to know you as the God who loves us more than your own existence. Just open your heart to Jesus, wherever you may be at in your relationship with him right now. Just ask him to take you a little bit deeper into his amazing heart of love. Jesus, thank you that you are a refuge in every time of trouble. God, I pray that we would know that in a practical, powerful way, that it wouldn't just be a head knowledge with us, but that we would really develop a personal relationship with you that has tested your promises and found them to be true in our own life. God, many here are extremely busy. There's cares weighing down on their life. And God, I don't want to just tell them there's more they have to do, but I want, I want for you to assure them that if they only come to you, that you'll give them the rest that they long for. That, that you will give them the strength to seek you. That if they will only look to you to believe in the refuge in Jesus that you have provided, that you will see them through every storm that they may face. Father, may this be the reality that we appreciate and the reality that we share with the world. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.